You're listening to the Let's Talk Future podcast series presented by Oppenheimer. If you're interested in the economy, markets, and investing in general, you've come to the right place. This series was created to fascinate and enlighten every type of investor. Curious about the latest consumer trends? How about innovations in healthcare or technology? The Let's Talk Future series definitely has you covered. Through timely and relevant conversations, we deliver some of the best thought leadership in the financial services industry. Our renowned hosts and guests explore big questions and big ideas and leave you with actionable insights. In this episode, our guest is David Wan, founder of Tidemark, and your host is Robin Graham, managing director and head of Oppenheimer's technology investment banking practice. This episode was recorded on August 19, 2022. Thank you for joining us. Hello, everyone. It's Robin Graham. I'm very pleased to spend today with my friend Dave Wan from Tidemark. Dave is originally from Massachusetts. He's a Harvard classmate with a Stanford MBA who's been investing in, advising, and building tech companies for over 20 years. Before Tidemark, Dave spent 15 years as a general partner at Technology Crossover Ventures, where he invested in and helped 25 high-growth tech companies scale and win. 12 of those companies went public, which is an extraordinary hit rate, and eight of those have been successfully acquired. You're probably still working on some exits for the reminder, right, Dave? Still hustling hard. Yep. Dave has also been recognized twice by the Forbes Midas list as one of the top 100 global technology investors. And for all his investing acumen, Dave is a down-to-earth guy who lists his country club as the ocean and is a founder member of the Oppenheimer biannual pilgrimage to the Kelly Slater Surf Ranch, where he pretty much owns the barrel section at the end of the wave. It's either you or Andy on that end section. It's, it's definitely not me. and I'm grateful to be a small part of that. Thank you, Rob. So I'm proud to add that um, I'm a limited partner in Tidemark, and I'm very excited about the portfolio Dave's built in just over a year since launching the firm. So let's start there. Dave, why did you start Tidemark? Yeah, thanks, Robin. It's great to be here. And while you're an individual investor, you're an incredibly important one. Why did I start Tidemark? So as you mentioned, I was at TCV for about 15 years. They were great years. I learned a lot of what I know about technology investing from Jay Hogue and my colleagues there. I think at this phase of my life, I was really quite keen on a couple of things. I really want to have the opportunity to build a firm around a bespoke strategy of investing in late stage technology companies. And the firm I wanted to build was really focused around being a better partner to entrepreneurs and CEOs. Not necessarily building a bigger firm. Uh, of course, we may grow over time, but but really focusing on continually improve our value proposition to the, the teams that we partner with. So what, what do you mean by a bespoke strategy? It's a great question, Robin. So in late stage technology where we invest, there's there's kind of two dominant personas. You have the purely thematic investors. So think of your crossover funds and, and a lot of your late stage venture funds, which can make very quick decisions on secular trends, right? And then on the flip side, you have buyout funds, which tend to probably take a bit longer, although they can move quickly as well, but they tend to really focus on the financial. And with all due respect for to both parties, because I think some of the smartest technology investors are either thematic crossover investors or more financially oriented buyout investors, I wanted to build a strategy that was an integration of both, uh, sort of the combination of the thematic and the fundamental. You've had both experiences, right? Both buyout and, and growth. Yeah. You know, I, I started investing uh, in, in 2000, right in time uh, to catch a bunch of falling knives. And, and I, I worked for a buyout firm that was investing in technology. So that's where I cut my teeth. And so I, I was trained in more of a fundamental approach. And then obviously over the last 15 years at TCV, we were much more of a thematic investor. So what is it about having both 
approaches that's so important to your current investing strategy? You know, I, I think in general, uh, you start with what, what you care for. And, and it's just, it's the way I think. I, I do love this idea of how you integrate changes in technology, consumer behavior, customer behavior, and uh, business model to market structure, competitive advantage, and, and economic models. But I think over the past 24 months has really shown the the benefit of this integration of the thematic and the fundamental. So if you think about 2021, when everybody's hair was on fire and things were moving very quickly, the fundamental lens really was great ballast for our firm. A number of our competitors invested 50, 75, 100% of our fund in that year. And with the benefit of hindsight, I believe that vintage will turn out to be quite challenging given the high prices. Now, of course, it's easy to to make that assessment after the fact, but in the moment, that fundamental lens was was the ballast that kept us disciplined on price and and, and these deals. Now, as we move to 2022, and the world is there's a lot more fear in the water than there's greed. Our aspiration is this thematic approach, this this belief in long term secular trends will steal us to to lean forward and make um, some more aggressive bets when the the landscape is fearful. So I, I really like this integration approach. It's great ballast. It pushes us against fear, against greed uh, when when those are the prevalent emotions. Well, that certainly sounds good to this limited partner. So I want to explore something quickly with you. You you invest primarily in SaaS businesses, correct? That's right. Okay. So for the members of our audience who may not be familiar with the term SaaS essentially stands for software as a service and sort of refers to the subscription revenue model by which one sells software these days. So essentially you're renting software versus the old hosted model where companies bought and own software, you know, with a significant upfront one-time expense. As investment bankers who advise tech companies going public, the subscription revenue models really allow for much better visibility into future revenue streams, which gives public company investors and our research analysts at Oppenheimer an ability to predict the future performance of a public company to a much greater degree. So we really like this model. With that backdrop, what is so attractive to Tidemark about SaaS investing? Robin, that's a, that's a great question. And, and not surprisingly, you, you covered you know most of how we would answer that question as to why SaaS is so attractive. If you think about from a first principle standpoint, a software model at its heart is you build something once and you sell it many times. And every time you sell it, there's very little associated cost of goods. So SaaS kind of takes that model to the next level. It takes that model to the next level really in two respects. The first is on the product side. In SaaS, what you have is you have the software, the business logic, the data, all it's described as multi-tenant. So you have the same instance that will power multiple customers. So every time you improve your software, your customers will automatically benefit from that product improvement. So your customer value grows and you have very little disruption to your customer base, which the second piece is, as you described, is the, the business model is quite different. Rather than paying a one-time upfront license model and then smaller amounts of maintenance, it's just a single subscription payment. And that subscription payment allows you to have recurring revenues, which allow you to more predictably project your, your revenues and your, your margins going forward, as you described, but also just helps you build your business. I think the final piece, and this is a little bit in the futures, and we can talk about if you want to go into more detail, is that these software, these SaaS models, because they have an ongoing relationship, are able to sell multiple products to the same customer. In the most extreme instance, become platforms where third parties build on them, and they and these vendors get to extract rents associated with. It. So it really has changed the SaaS model has really changed the nature of software and the and the value of the businesses. 
So, so the poster child for an epic SaaS model would be Salesforce.com, right? They were they were essentially one of the first ISVs to disrupt their industry by you know, fundamentally changing the distribution and revenue model to subscription. Are there any other notable public SaaS companies you'd point to as a good examples? Oh, you know, the, the world is SaaS now. So obviously Salesforce and, and, and CRM, uh, they're in a number of different segments now. Uh, Workday in its category. The, if Atlassian, you, you name it, the dominant software companies are software as a service. So as, as you're investing across the SaaS landscape, are there particular focus areas, verticals, or platforms that you're particularly interested in and, and why? Yeah. At this point, as I mentioned, SaaS really is the predominant metaphor for a software company. What we look for now is a little, is sort of that next level, that third level where a, a single product company, software as a service, single product company starts to sell multi-products. And over time, they become so entrenched in the industry that they become a platform and ecosystem. The reason why we look for those types of dynamics is generally the traditional SaaS model is a, is a pretty linear business. By that, I mean, as you get bigger, your returns to sales investment go down because you're moving outside of your core market and you get offsetting off operating leverage. You have pretty linear growth of margins. It's not super explosive, right? But with these platform companies that have multiple products and then get entrenched and having third parties driving third party revenues as well, what you see is nonlinear growth in margin, right? So as you get bigger, things get easier. As things get easier, you make more money. And so those types of business models or, or metaphors are, are really powerful. And those, that's typically what we seek in a software investment. So which industry verticals are you, you know, invested in a tide mark and, and what's exciting about those verticals? You know, what secular trends is the fund exposed to as a result or you know, kind of said a different way in your language, what, which waves you riding in those verticals? Yeah, we're looking at a number of different areas. We're looking at, again, that, that business model construct applied to, to specific areas. So one area that we've been quite bullish on in, over the last three to five years is actually more than that, is small business and vertical software. Um, so this is software that powers things like restaurants, hotels, auto buy repair shops, small mainstream business. In that case, restaurants being the vertical. Restaurants would be a vertical, hotels would be a vertical. Yeah, you got it. All right, Dave, so we noticed that you've been particularly focused on vertical software. What's what's your thesis there and is it a contrarian view? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, we do invest across a number of different areas, but in the past five to 10 years, we've been very active in SMB and vertical SaaS. And it's a, it's a category I love for emotional reasons. It's a category that I love from a, a business model standpoint. And finally, I, I think it's, it's, it's fairly misunderstood. So let me walk you through each one of those. As you described, there is a lot of skepticism. The general narrative is that, hey, these are small end markets, at least compared to horizontal markets where you can sell your product to any company, you're, you're now selling to a specific vertical, like a, a restaurant or hotel. And that a lot of times your, your customers are small business customers and therefore are expensive to reach uh, given the deal sizes and oftentimes churn fairly frequently given the mortality rate. Well, I, I think what's been really interesting over the past five to 10 years in, in many of the companies that uh, we've been fortunate to work with, like a Toast or, a, or a SiteMind or a LegalZoom or a CCC or, or a Xero, is that these markets actually are quite a bit larger than you expect. Um, they're larger for two reasons. The first is you get much higher penetration. So if you think about it, if you're building a horizontal product, you need to build a product for almost every single industry and every single use case. 
As a result, these products may be really flexible, but the time to value is quite, quite long, right? Versus if you're building for one end customer, you understand their workflow, you understand their needs. And so as a result, your product is that much stronger. The interesting part about uh, and, and vertical is what we've seen is there are also local network effects. So if you're selling to restaurants or hotels, what you find is it's a city by city market. And once you reach, call it 10% of a market, things actually get easier. What happens is more and more of your peers in, in your city are using your software. The, the customers see that and, and your conversion cycles get that much faster. So what you see with vertical software companies is oftentimes your market share is much higher than that in horizontal. We've had uh, portfolio companies with um, with astounding market shares. Your effective team is quite, quite a bit larger. The second piece is your ARPU and your LTV is higher than expected. And the reason why is your vertical customer typically is a small business. A small business really wants to work with as many, as few partners as they can. They want, uh, they want a single point of accountability. And so if you sell the right product, and in our language at Tidemark, we call it the control point. If you, if you sell the most critical product, you have an unfair right to cross-sell a number of additional products, additional services, additional financial services. The final manifestation of ARPU in the depth of these markets is going from selling to your merchant base to your merchant's customers, your merchant's employees, your merchant's suppliers. And so we've seen some of our companies actually not only sell to end verticals like restaurants and hotels, but extend through the value chain, again, uh, increase the effective TAM. So these businesses are, are fairly underestimated. They're incredibly powerful at scale. So as you're looking at these businesses in, in vertical SaaS, I mean, you, you mentioned the idea of a control point in the model. Could you just describe what those control points are and how you look for them? Where, where do you look for these control points that allow these businesses to scale and own that kind of market share? We have a whole framework on this, and I'm happy to share with your with your audience that framework. But the, the general idea with the control point is it's the single most or, or one of the most important systems that an owner has. And so typically you find it either in the front office, an application that helps you uh, generate revenues, or you find it in the back office, which usually is an accounting system of some sort that reconciles key data and key financial metrics. And th there are other attributes that you commonly see. This is the system that most of your employees are in every day. So it has very high engagement. This is the system that manages key resources like your people, your time, your money. This is a system where transactions flow through. So you just can't get it wrong. So at, at the most, um, maybe the most crudest level, this is the last application you turn off before going bankrupt. Unfortunately, 2020 was a, was a great test for these frameworks where indeed the, the control points that we invested in, you know, they, they, they hung tough despite their customers being in severe distress. So it, it's, it's this idea that you are the central system uh, for your end customer. And over time, that allows you to become their operating system. So it so sounds like you have a particular interest in the SMB market and you describe a lot of the characteristics of the SMB market and why that's compelling and creates kind of a big moat around these businesses that you're you're investing in over time. W what else is compelling about the SMB market to Tidemark? Yeah, Rob, that's a, that's a great question. You know, we invest across a number of different areas, but I do have a, a soft spot in my heart for the SMB end market. It's all the frameworks we described with vertical and SMB SaaS. It, it's a contrarian view, so that's certainly it. But 
The other piece is just the role that SMBs have in our society and in the communities that we we live in. If you think about it, there's kind of two paths to empowerment. Uh, there's education and entrepreneurship, and increasingly for I don't know, new immigrant family or other folks, it's education is quite challenging to, to access, but most people can start a restaurant. Most people can start a retail store. And so it's this great ladder uh, for empowerment that is uh, fundamental to the communities that we live in. I think 45% of the population are employed by small business. I think this was really, this, this became really clear to me and made me really want to include a foundation in the Tidemark story during COVID. You know, I saw it from two two directions. The first is, you know, I was, I was on the board of Toast, I still am today. And I saw at a high level, the impact of COVID on the restaurant industry. And then in our local neighborhood, Mama Coca's, which I know you frequent as well, like you, you saw Omar and his journey through that time. You know, Mama Coco's is a is a local Mexican restaurant where Omar serves his grandmother's recipes and just a great business. Uh, he's a great host. And um, you could see during that time, it was really weighing on him. And so this idea of, of software empowering entrepreneurs like that, allowing him to access you know, customers online through delivery or through through pickup, you saw how that got him through it. So there's just this really cool thing about serving small businesses that is more than just the returns. That's fantastic. Your website is full of really rich content around SaaS investing, vertical SaaS, SMB investing. You started a project called the Vertical SaaS Knowledge Project to help found our entrepreneurs. How does that framework help entrepreneurs you partner with build their businesses more effectively. And can you tell us a little bit about that project? Because it seems really content rich and interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think you asked me earlier, why did I start Timework? And one of, the, one of the reasons was to try and iterate and innovate on the value proposition to entrepreneurs and CEOs. And one of the things that we aspire to is, is to be a hub of ideas, a hub of knowledge. And these aren't necessarily our ideas. They're the community's ideas that we're, we're involved in. And so the Vertical SaaS Knowledge Project is a, the first project that we uh, took on, and we now have five or six different series that are, are similar. And, and the way we help, the way we aspire to help uh, entrepreneurs and CEOs is really three ways. The first is a strategy framework. It's, it's essentially helping you think through long-term decisions and long-term prioritization. So do you, do you prioritize locations versus ARPU? If you're going to um, expand your offering from you know, your, your current control point, do you go to payments first, payroll, insurance? How do you, how do you practically do these things? So it, the first is a strategy framework. The second is, um, is real operational guidance. So we have uh, something called a vertical SaaS in action series. And so we'll bring um, C-level executives that are building some of the biggest companies. So we got JV from Toast, the CRO of Toast, talk about scaling a local sales team. We had Allison Elworthy from HubSpot talk about uh, revenue ops. We had Di Williams from uh, Sitemire talking about expanding internationally to host these 90-minute riff sessions, um, either on a one-time basis or a quarterly basis with 15 to 20 CEOs that are in our community. Um, the final way we do it, the third way, is through success studies, having them present their stories, having people that are in our community that aren't necessarily investees present their stories and really inspire this next generation of entrepreneurs. We, we feel like that's just as as important as the more um, operational tactical advice. I think both are great, but inspiration does, uh, you know, building these businesses is, is hard work and and, uh, and momentum businesses and, and 
you know, inspiration is just as important as, as the, the operational. Well, it seems like you're doing a lot to help entrepreneurs in the, in the software industry. So can you tell us a little bit about the portfolio? How, how big is it today? How many more companies are you planning to invest in out of fund one over what period of time? Yeah. Um, so we, uh, we started in 2021 and, and as I mentioned, through some some tough discipline, we were very careful with our, our first year of deployment. We, we have a lot of dry powder and, and actually are um, looking to be very aggressive uh, as we go through the next couple of years. Um, so you should see us be fairly active through the course of the end of this year and, and into the middle of next year. I think we'll want to have a portfolio where there'll be 20 to 30 companies. Um, there'll be some core deals that are anywhere from five to 10% of our fund, and there'll be some smaller deals for exposure, but that's kind of the portfolio we're looking to put together. Sounds like a great approach, Dave, and we look forward to working with you on that. It sounds like you've got a really interesting and unique model with the Tidemark Foundation and its philanthropy. Could you tell us a little bit about who that foundation supports? What are the, uh, what are the, the, the areas you're passionate about putting that capital to work in? Yeah, the, the three main areas, and, and again, you gotta build the firm first. The order of operations is build the firm, Invest the money, generate carry so that you can give. We, we did want to get the foundation in the world, so put a seed gift into the foundation. So it already has, has started to give. But um, the three areas are mainstream empowerment, so supporting local and, and small businesses, um, the mainstream merchants. So that's number one. The second is sustainability. And the third is mental and social wellness. We've given to three organizations. We're a founding member of Stanford Sustainability School. It's a it's great initiative that we, we've We've known for a little while. Sea trees, which uh, which Robin, you're involved in as well, which is this great intersection of surf, which uh, which you and I both love, and and sustainability. And then we did uh, we did give to actually a, a, a hospitality technology consortium that was supporting refugees in Ukraine. So uh, again, we're, we're early days there. Uh, you should see a lot more from us in the next couple of years. We're, we're you know candidly focused on the on the firm first, but uh, it's been fun to get out there and, and and try and make some impact. That's good to have a real purpose to the work you do outside of um, championing entrepreneurs and raising and giving them growth capital to, to build huge businesses. So Dave, thanks a lot for explaining uh, what you're doing with Tidemark to uh, our audience today. I know that everyone will have found it uh, incredibly educational and interesting. And with a little luck, maybe we can get some Oppenheimer clients into fun too. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, great, great to, uh, Great to chat with you, Robin. Thanks for having me. And um, thanks for all your support and partnership and friendship. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. We know your podcast listening options are endless, so we're glad you're spending time with us. Don't miss out on our next episode. And remember to subscribe today. Join our community to expand your thoughts on business, the markets, and the dynamic forces affecting them. It's time to talk future.